You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Welcome to M Pavilion 2018. It's lovely to see you all here tonight. Now, first, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're standing on, the Yellowcoat Willem. The Yellowcoat Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects <laughs> to the designers, to their ancestors, and to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Now tonight, we're delighted to welcome Sir Nicholas Sirota, who will be in conversation with Dr. Rebecca Coates for M Talks, the Art Museum in Flux. Sir Nicholas is with us as a guest of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and courtesy of the Gordon Darling Foundation. And Sir Nicholas is currently the chair of the Arts Council England and was previously director of the Tate from 1988 through to 2017. And we welcome back to M Pavilion Dr. Rebecca Coates, currently director of the Shepparton Art Museum and deeply involved in public art projects throughout Victoria and overseas, including at the Museum of Modern Art Oxford. Rebecca has previously published extensively and was awarded her PhD in art history by the University of Melbourne in 2013. So Nicholas, Rebecca, welcome and thank you for joining us tonight. Well, good afternoon everyone and um, almost good evening. And I know that there are lots of blankets, so wrap up warm and um, get ready for a fabulous conversation. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Kulin Nations, and their elders past, present and emerging, still to come, uh, Naomi. Um, and uh, I'd like to uh, uh, acknowledge the Naomi Milgram Foundation for not only this fabulous p pavilion, um, the most recent in a series, creating these spaces through art, architecture, design, that we can have really interesting conversations in with great speakers. So. Um, Naomi and the Foundation, thank you very much. It's my really very great pleasure to introduce um, Sir Nicholas Sirota to Melbourne uh, and to this pavilion this evening. Um, I was working in the UK in the 1990s, seems a little while ago, and, and um, then and now, I think um, Nick, as he has given, tasked me to call him, um, was described as a cultural power broker. It's fair to say that um, he's been on the top ten of Art Review's Power 100 for too long. For far too long. Far too long. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think that we'd all be shocked and most disappointed if it disappeared at any stage. Um, so to many of us, as Sam has said, um, Nick needs absolutely no introduction at all as the director of the Tate for 29 years, which is an absolutely fabulous uh, innings. And under that, under that um, stewardship, um, we've seen Tate, as, as it is known now, uh, undergo enormous changes. So I think we're particularly looking forward to seeing that, not only from an architectural perspective, but as an institutional perspective too. Um, I have to say, on a little aside, that um, you've always been on my top list of who I'd like to sit next to at dinner. So... <laughs> so well, you're going to have to wait a little longer. <laughs> 
might be quite a good conversationalist. Maybe, maybe a couple of hours. All right, okay, okay. So I have got an enormous number of things on my list, but I know what we're going to do this evening uh, is um, introduce with, with some images. Everyone who works in art museums and galleries loves a good slide and tells a jolly good story. So we're going to start with that as a bit of a provocation and then we will weave our way through a number of questions um, and pick up on some of the themes and ideas that you will introduce, I know. Uh, and at the end, there will be a chance to have a couple of questions from the audience. So I'm going to hand over to you, Nick. Well, um, if I can begin really by adding to what Rebecca said about uh, Naomi and uh, the foundation, because I think creating this pavilion and creating a space in the centre of Melbourne where discussion and debate can take place has clearly been very, very important. And I'm going to be talking later in a moment about discussion and debate and their role in relation to museums. But to have this space here every year is really quite remarkable. Um, what I thought I would do would be, um, as Rebecca said, to show a few slides and do a slightly formal initial presentation because I think it's a good idea to try and get a few ideas on the table and then we can have a good conversation. Um, and I suppose really what I wanted to start by saying is that of course, you know, the concept of the museum is a concept and indeed it, that is constantly changing. It's driven forward by a combination of, you know, on the one hand curatorial vision, then you get the contribution of artists and then finally the demands of the audience and it's that triangular relationship that really establishes what museums are um, you know the architecture is one thing the attitude of curators and artists and the behavior of the visitors they all change uh, and they don't all change in step with one another but i wanted to begin quickly by showing a few images that somehow remind us about the way in which museums evolved over two centuries before talking very quickly about museums in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, this is Schinkel's Altus Museum in Berlin, built in the 1820s, and in a way it served as the prototype for so many museums built as temples, and also with a very, very, very definite way of seeing a collection because it was presented on filade. You walk through room after room, and of course, you know, it's the model for the British Museum, it's a model for a whole range of others. And then by contrast, you have John Soane's Dulwich Picture Gallery, you know, the top lit, beautiful space for showing paintings. Not sculpture, really, but paintings. And this is the kind of model which so many architects, actually, I suppose, in the last 30 or 40 years have had in mind when creating new spaces for art. Um, in the 20th century, you have, of course, Daryl and Stone's Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, and then in the post-war period, the notion of a museum in a rural setting, the relationship between art and nature. I mean, all of these different spaces very much, I mean, clearly condition the way in which you experience and look at the art, as, of course, does this place. Um, the Pompidou Center by Piano and Rogers, designed really to be an exhibition machine more than a museum. Um, as I said earlier, 
I think I want to talk a little bit about the changes that have taken place in recent years, um, how museums have moved into new territory, and in particular, how museums have started to create spaces in which people have a more immersive experience in relation to art, um, and also the way in which museums have begun to be really on a larger scale what this pavilion is tonight, a place where people congregate and debate. Um, so to begin with, artists. Um, you know, in the late 60s, there was a really quite profound change in the relationship between artists and museums. And artists began to make work not in the privacy of a studio, but directly in commercial gallery spaces, in Kunsthalle and in Biennales, but also eventually in museums. And curators who had previously simply gone to, a, gone to um, the studio and selected work for an exhibition suddenly found themselves having to help artists find materials or look for technicians or and effectively become producers in the realization of work. And I think that change reflected obviously in part um, artists wish to do rather more than simply hang a work on a wall or place it in a pedestal, place it on a pedestal. They wanted it actually, actually to work in real space and in, to some extent in real time. So an exhibition like this, which is um, when attitudes become form, the actual groundbreaking exhibition put together by Harold Zaman um, in 1969 in the Kunsthalle Bern, artists came Many of them came with objects which they then simply installed in this free space. Occasionally, of course, they actually made work in that space. And then artists like Richard Serra, um, his Serra actually at the Castelli Gallery in New York, making an installation in 1969 called Splashing, where he threw lead into the corner of the space and that's his reinterpretation of the piece of, um, in Tilburg in uh, the Netherlands about um, 30 years later. So you have artists working in the museum and working in spaces. And the next change in a way was artists taking over industrial space. This is um, place that's now closed now with a Boyce inst installation in the Hallen für Neuenkunst in Schaffhausen, which opened in 1982. It now looks like the kind of classic industrial space converted to be a space for showing art, which we all know, love, visit, and take for granted. But this was the, virtually the first, and it was only 30 years ago, or nearly 40 years ago now. And of course, this was probably one of the second or third is that what's now the Geffen Contemporary, what was called the Temporary Contemporary, where Frank Gehry was engaged to make over what had been a former police garage in Los Angeles and to create the kind of space inside that you saw in that Schaffhausen shot a moment ago. And you then get artists beginning to work, work actually in the spaces and also working in spaces that are quite classical spaces, like this space at Tate Britain, as it now is, Tate Gary, as it was when Richard Serra made this piece called Weight and Measure, two forged concrete blocks 
made of a size that would, in Sarah's view, hold the space and work in the space, um, and installed in 1992. Um, and it was that combination, in a way, of using industrial space together with working very directly with artists that gave the Tate trustees, I think, the confidence to take over this redundant power station. You see it probably, a photograph taken probably somewhere about 1981, when it was still, act, still operating as a power station. Um, it only operated as a power station for 18 years. It's been a museum of modern art now for nearly 20 years. And in between, it was derelict for 18 years because it was a re regarded as a redundant building. No one visited it. No one knew really where it was, notwithstanding the fact that it was opposite St. Paul's Cathedral. But it was that combination of industrial space and artists working in the space that would encourage architects like Herzog de Meuron to put in a competition entry. This is actually their competition entry for Tate Modern in 1994. And there were six or eight images of which this was one. This was their view about what the turbine hall would be. Um, they were putting in for the competition about six months after Rachel Whiteread won the Turner Prize for the work called House, which was a cast of a row house in East London in 1993, which was demolished. And of course, they were simply suggesting that a work on that scale could be seen in the Turbine Hall. Um, that space, of course, has been um, home to all kinds of work, including, you know, Juan Munoz's um, double bind, um, this highway way, sunflower seed piece. I mean, these have all been great works using that kind of space. But of course, artists aren't only interested in space. They're also interested in history, and they're interested in the way in which um, museums operate. So an artist like Marcel Bruder's, seen here in 1972 in the documentary exhibition, was looking at the museum as archive, looking at the museum as a base for power, and in the, that he made his Museum of the Eagles. These kind of spaces, museums generally, quite apart from being occupied by artists who work in three dimensions or two, have also obviously, quite obviously, as everyone in this space will know, been taken over by performers from Merce Cunningham and other dance and choreographers to musicians. And there's a, also a new generation of performers working in museums. And here's Michael Clark at um, the, um, in the Turbine Hall. Um, and it was that kind of engagement on the part of um, choreographers and performers that encouraged us to think in terms of taking on the tank spaces at Tate Modern um, as we did um, in 2000. Um, there's also been, I think, a, a really re very remarkable change in the way in which audiences think about themselves in relation to museums. And for me, it was first evident with this piece by Olofur Eliasson 
in 2003 in the Turbine Hall, where whatever his intentions had been as an artist creating a site-specific work in a former industrial building, the public somehow took over the space and used it as an arena of their own for their own interpretation. And the work gained a somewhat unanticipated performative aspect to it. And you've had similar kind of unprogrammed responses to other works like Doris Salcedo's um, shibboleth, affectionately known as the crack, many of you will have seen. Um, crack in the sense of crevice rather than uh, drug. Um, I think that you know, that kind of much more active public engagement also became very evident when we were doing Turner Prize displays at Tate Britain and we introduced this notion of having comment cards from the public. Um, this would have been about 2000, 2001. Those kind of responses from the public, of course, we now see on social media all the time, but at the time, inviting artists to judge for themselves in this way was regarded as um, somewhat no novel. Um, I think there are questions really about how, you, how we should respond to this kind of engagement um, on the part of the public. And we might well talk about that in a moment. Um, I mentioned the tank spaces at Tate Modern. These are spaces that, I mean, many of you here will have seen in use, but they give us a new kind of space in the museum that can be used for performance, as is, as in uh, Anna Ter Teresa de Kiersmacher's performance is in the space in 2012, or an installation like this, um, William Kentridge. Uh, and we've used them in a whole variety of ways, and it has transformed the possibilities for an institution like the Tate. Um, and it's interesting, of course, that MoMA, in developing its new building with Dillus Cofidio, are intending to build themselves. They don't have a found space of this kind, but they're going to build themselves what they call a grey box for this kind of activity. Um, institutions don't only work in real space, they also work in virtual space. And one of the things that Tate has been doing has been doing a whole series of performance pieces that exist only on the web. They may be recorded and they may be and they will be and are live on the web. And you can watch a performance like this one by Callie Spooner um, in real time, whether you're in Australia or India or Europe or Latin America, and then you end up having a conversation with people all over the world who shared exactly the same experience as you in real time. Um, on the web. Um, and like all institutions, you know, Tate conducts a huge part of its program now, literally on the web, um, through um, producing material which simply goes out in on that form and certainly in no other form. And we end up, of course, with digital studios where people are working um, and communicating both across England and also elsewhere. Um, the digital, in a way, represents a new way of trying to think about the relationship between uh, 
the museum and audiences in a fairly significant way. And if you think back about museums, you think, you think about a place like the National Gallery in London. It was no coincidence that it was put right in the center of the city. And if you look in the debates in Parliament that took place in the 1840s and 1850s about the place of art in the community, it's astonishing how familiar the language is in those debates about the importance of putting art in front of people. And in, in, in the case of the National Gallery, having free admission, having a museum that was right in the center of the city, having a museum that would attract all social classes um, and give them the opportunity to see great art. It would have been much easier for them to have built this institution somewhere else in London. Um, but they put it right in the center. Um, so I think that institutions like the Tate and many other museums are beginning to think about other ways of engaging um, the interest of the public. And this image is an image of one whole floor at Tate Modern, which is more, more frequently occupied with more people in that way, which is now called Tate Exchange. And it's a space which sits um, halfway in a way between a university and a museum. And it's more like the kind of um, institution that was created in Britain when the Open University was established um, by Michael Young in the late 1960s and early 70s, where people who didn't ne necessarily have access to further education were given an opportunity to develop their own lives by taking a degree long after they thought they might otherwise have left university and developing that new kind of way of working um, in spaces like Tate Exchange is, I think, going to be part of the future of museums. Uh, perhaps I should stop there and we should start a conversation. I think that's a really good um, point to stop on in terms of images because I think it reflects, like libraries, the radical change that art museums and galleries have undergone in the most recent past and certainly over the last 30 years. And I think um, that's probably a good point to start a conversation on too because we're looking at Tate as it is now and as it's most recently evolved. But of course the institution wasn't like that when you started 30 years ago. How would you describe the institution that you started at to then start thinking about this journey that the institution and you and the staff and the audiences that have been part of it have gone on over that period of time. Think back 30 years, if you can. Um, well, in one sense, it's you have to think back a long way because it was a very, very different world um, in the sense that it was a world that was looking only at art made in Northwest Europe and North America. If you look at the collection of the Tate until about 2000, it was almost entirely focused on Northwest Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. The same was true of MoMA in New York, other than the fact that Alfred Barr and others in the 40s and 50s had actually been much more open and had bought in Latin America, brought from Russia, brought from continental Europe. So there was a much more limited frame. 
the notion of what a museum could be and should be was clearly, as I've just been indicating, much more constrained and limited. It was limited to um, showing also not just from Northwest Europe and North America, but also a canon which was you know, almost entirely male. Um, there was a big gulf between that which was um, you know, regarded as museum worthy and that which was not. And there was very, very little in the way of education and learning Although, you know, the Tate had established a learning department, I think, in the early 70s. So that was only 15 years old at that mm. point. So those museums were running in a very different way. And, and I think also that there was a bigger distinction probably than there is now between a museum and a Kunsthalle. I mean, the museums were much more conservative in that respect. And you'd, of course, come from two institutions. I mean... Um, the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford, which is now Modern Art Oxford, um, where you were director for three years, and then uh, um, um, Whitechapel. Um, two institutions that um, I think often are seen as having reputations that are beyond their bricks and mortar in terms of the ambition, what they did, the people that were involved in it, and the way that they worked with artists. Um, so that's, a, that's an exciting shift from those institutions that can sometimes be a bit more agile, if you want, and work with artists in a particular way to a, a national institution that, as you describe it, is uh, at a particular point in time. What was it that attracted you and what did you want to do when you got there? Um, there is, of well, course, I, that I, famous story well, of wanted, the I wanted, manifesto. I, wa I, wa I wanted to make it more agile. <laughs> I mean, quite simply, I wanted it to respond to what artists were doing. I wanted it to be respected by artists. I wanted, I mean, look, it was a great institution in 1988. Let's not make any, you know, false claims here. It had a great collection. It had um, some remarkable curators working within it. Mm. Um, but it probably wasn't as, well, it, it, it wasn't doing quite what it, I thought it could do. And it certainly wasn't as agile um, as institutions now have to be, because there's an expectation now that they will be much more responsive to what artists are doing than was the case at that time. Mm. So, uh, fast forwarding somewhat, but this you started a program of um, looking at other other spaces, um, other places beyond London, um, for parts of Tate. Um, Tate Liverpool, first of all, uh, St Ives, and then, of course, Tate Bankside, as it was first, then Tate Modern, um, and now part of the Tate. What was your thinking in looking regionally, if you want, um, and how was that received when, when you first started looking at that sort of program? Well, the Tate, um, the Tate is a national institution. It's funded by everyone in the country, and it sits in London. And in the mid-70s, um, the chair of the Tate was a man called Alan Bullock. He was, he was a historian. He wrote brilliantly on Hitler. He'd been born in Yorkshire, um, and he had a feeling that people in Yorkshire shouldn't be denied the opportunity to see great works of art. Um, one of the other trustees was a man called Stuart Mason, who was director of education in Leicestershire, and he had been very much an advocate of artists, performers, 
composers and musicians working in schools in Leicester in the 1960s and had built a collection um, for schools. And together they, at a particular board meeting, argued that the Tate should be active outside London as well as within. And so in the late 70s, the Tate began to think about that possibility. And my predecessor, Alan Burness, was smart enough to take advantage of an opportunity that existed in Liverpool to create Tate Liverpool. And, it, and Tate Liverpool opened a couple of months before I arrived at the mm -hmm. Tate. So I wasn't responsible for that. I probably was responsible for making sure that it stayed open rather than opened because uh, there was nothing like enough money to run it and the government didn't give any additional funding at that moment. And in consequence, the Tate was diverting funds into Liverpool and that was causing enormous resentment within the institution um, where people were obviously less able to do things than they would have otherwise been. Shortly after um, I arrived, there was a lot of pressure to create a Tate in Norwich and another one in Bristol. Um, and then there was a campaign in the Southwest to have a Tate in St. Ives. And we acceded to that because there was a real need to have in the West Country um, a proper representation of the art that had been made in St. Ives from 1945, well, from the mid-30s through mm. to the 70s by people like Patrick Heron and William Scott and Roger Hilton and obviously Hepworth and Nicholson and Peter Lanyon. Um, but we refused the others because it felt to me as though to go to Norwich or to go to Bristol where there were already important institutions would mean that the Tate was going to, in some way, present itself as being more important than those and would certainly draw resources away from those. And, you know, you go to Norwich, you've got a castle museum, you've got the Sainsbury Centre by Norman Foster with a great collection. The Tate arriving in Norwich would have really squeezed those institutions. So instead, we developed a pattern of trying to work with institutions. In initially, it was quite imperial we would make exhibitions and we would send them to the regions. This was the early 90s. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating. I, oh, certainly, I, wouldn't know, have, I certainly wouldn't have described us as doing it in those terms um, at that time. But it was a magnanimous gesture. That's another way of thinking about it. Right, you know? okay. Um, and but there was no poor but, relation but, 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 about but, it. Uh, there, was, uh, there was supposedly no poor relation. Okay. Um, but actually... Then things really did begin to change because once we'd opened Tate Modern, it seemed to me that if we were going to work outside London, we had to work in a very different way. And we had to work really to support institutions. So we developed this scheme which we call Plus Tate, the notion therefore being that you had an institution like the Sainsbury Centre that was part of this network or like the museums in Bristol and they, as being part of this group, were, part of, were able to say they were the Sainsbury Centre plus Tate. And what they got was free access to the collection. Well, not quite free, but fr you know, fairly free access to the collection. Mm. An opportunity to use our collection to make the shows that they wanted to make rather than that we wanted to make. Um, an opportunity to work with each other and to build a network that strengthened the whole ecology within the UK. And, of course, within that is the incredible opportunity for skilling up and professionalisation across staff. 
Um, and I think that's also part of that seeing that arts and culture can be a place to work in the, you know, alongside that. But the skilling up and the professionalisation works in both directions. Oh, it isn't, totally, a, it yeah. isn't a question of simply of the Tate telling others how to do it. I mean, the great opportunity for some of the younger curators at the Tate was to work on shows with colleagues in Manchester or um, probably not Oxford as it happens, but you know, other pr you know, across the country yeah. and have an opportunity to make a show in a space where the resources are probably not quite so generous as they are at the Tate. And gaining a real insight in yeah. exchange too of that place and those people and those, that context that the work is going to be shown in. So uh, that started, you've come to Tate, um, St Ives has occurred, and of course, 1990s in London, you know, you've got this enormous economic um, centre of the economic world in London, and, and, you know, it was really booming. You've got uh, Blair and Cool Britannia, and this opportunity with the Bankside, you know, with Tate Bankside, those two enormous um, buildings in London, Bankside and also... Um, Battersea Park, what yeah. was it that attracted you to this particular disused power station as opposed to the other one or the opportunity to work in that sort of space, which is an industrial space, as you say, uh, that had lain redundant for 18 years? And what did you think that that building transformed into a, a gallery space would offer people in London? Um, well, in the first place, it would offer them a... Museum of Modern Art, which they didn't have. It was one of the few capital cities in the world that by the late 1990s, or the 90, early 1990s, did not have a dedicated Museum of Modern Art. And for 75 years, two collections had fought for space within the Millbank building. There was a collection of British art from 1500 to the present day, and there was a collection of international modern art from roughly 1900 to the present day. And so London needed a space in which you know, British art within an international context could be seen. Um, but the building, it's, we did look at a number of options. Um, we looked at a number of other sites, having decided that there was insufficient space on the Millbank site, and we, looked at the possibility of a new build and I think most people within the institution thought that we should do a new build almost on principle mm. um, but none of the sites that were available to us were large enough and the great thing about Bankside was that it offered the opportunity to have a great deal of space probably at less cost and also with the possibility in the long term of expansion, the idea really being that you'd open in 2000 and sometime around 2025 you would do an extension. Um, it didn't work out like that. But I think that um, the possibility of using that raw space and working with an architect to create galleries but also to use the found space became compelling. Uh, and then, of course, the realisation that notwithstanding the fact that it was a part of London that no one visited, it was actually in the centre of London. And that actually you could change London by turning it into a public space um, and encouraging someone else to build a bridge that would connect you with St Paul's. 
Um, we knew that if we ourselves proposed a bridge, it would fail. But there was a really wonderful man called David Bell who was managing editor of the Financial Times. And they had a building just downstream from where Tate Modern was. And he, he didn't conceive, but he basically took up the responsibility for trying to get a bridge built. And he, t and he succeeded. And we gave him a lot of help without telling anyone. Because it was quite difficult to get to, to start off with. Well, as I said, most people didn't, had no idea where it was. Every, for the first four or five years during the construction period, I would constantly try to meet donors, or potential donors, for the project and discover that they had all gone to Battersea Power Station rather than Bankside Power Station. <laughs> I was waiting for them there. They weren't there. I mean, even... Um, I remember a trustee meeting the week before Tate Modern opened, and one of the trustees who had never been very enthusiastic about um, the distance from his house in Chelsea to Bankside Power Station... <laughs> Um, and he was probably one of the people who thought we should be in Battersea. But at this meeting, five days before we opened, solemnly asked me how people would find Tate Modern. You, did, mean, you did have a little um, boat that went up and down when it first opened. Um, the boat still goes up and down, and we did persuade someone to have a boat, yes, it's true. All right. Yeah. yeah. yeah very good. Yeah. I'm pleased that the boat was someone else as well. Yeah. You um, selected the architects through an architectural competition. Do you think that's the best way to get the, to get the right architectural outcome? Um, I think it is the best way to get the right outcome, provided you choose architects and not a design. So I think that we set up the competition in a form that made it difficult, although they all tried, to produce a design for the building. So we didn't ask for a design. We asked for answers to three questions. And those three questions were, how do you see this building in the context of London? I, what is the public manifestation? What is the public realm that this building is going to occupy? And the second question was, um, how would you organize the circulation in this space? Mm. And the third would be, where would you place the galleries within this volume? And it has to be said that Herzog de Moron in particular, but also Renzo Piano, recognized that the turbine hall should be left empty. I think they did that partly because they realized there wasn't enough money to fill it. Um, at least not with building. There was enough money to fill it with art. But I think that, more seriously, you can't, um, I think, choose an architect on the basis of a finished design. I know you're about to be engaged in this process. I was, and you've chosen your architect. But, I mean, I would say you cannot design a museum. In fact, it's actually very, very difficult to design any building without having a dialogue between the client and the architect. And in a competition, you can't have a... You, you, you don't have that dialogue. 
if you have a de design competition as such, you don't have that dialogue. You also famously said at the time that um, to have a successful building, you needed a sole client voice. I don't know if you remember that. I'm assuming that you were the sole client voice. I may have said it, but I don't think I was able to act it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of, pe lo lots of, pe lo you know, lots of people were involved. We were very fortunate in having two or three artists on the board um, who were engaged. Um, Bill Woodrow for one, Michael Craig Martin for another. Um, we didn't have a big building committee, it's true. We had two or three artist trustees, we had a couple of other trustees. We had a very interesting jury when we were selecting, uh, selecting the architect, but we did narrow down the discussion to a small number of voices. Often in these big projects, the terms, um, particularly by local councils or governments, iconic and landmark are thrown around. Do you think, uh, and certainly that has been um, Tate Modern, um, Guggenheim, Bilbao, and a number of other major buildings of this sort have been described as that. Do you think that these terms are often used with reckless abandon? Do you think we should be cautious of uh, naming buildings like this in these terms? Um. I think these are big public institutions um, and they occupy and have a certain presence in the city um, and therefore they need to be recognizable as public buildings and they need to be approachable as public buildings so they need a certain scale. Um, I don't think they necessarily have to have a signature as such. Um, and they can, as I think we now recognize, could be memorable in many, many different ways. Mm. Um, it's interesting, I think, to compare the initial phase of Tate Modern with the extension that Herzog Ramon added, which opened in 2016. Um, because the language is recognizably connected, but they are architects whose language has developed very, very significantly over a 20-year period. Um, and they almost make a fetish of moving themselves forward. Um, and it's one of the things that I think makes them such interesting architects. Um, so the two work together I think in a very um, intriguing way. And not least, I think the fact that the original conversion of the boiler house um, now reads very differently with the new, not just with the bridges across, mm. but actually with a different kind of space. And somehow the original building breathes much more easily than it did. I mean, the original building and its circulation was quite um, conventional. Mm. It was almost like shinkle. Um, but I think that, um, in some respects, but I think that the two elements working together push each other. 
I want to think a little about, a bit about that building and the way that it sits in that landscape and the urban landscape, the urban development of that area where Tate Bankside is. We've talked about the bridges that link it. Um, we've talked about the changes that have evolved. We often hear about uh, gentrification and changing um, landscapes of cities through arts, through artists, through the cultural sector and the way that that then pushes them out. We've all seen those images of the new uh, Tate extension with people practically butting up uh, and you know the, the accommodation that's surrounding it. What impact do you think that this growth of an arts institution has had on that particular part or the changing face of London really in that area? Good and bad. Um. Well, I think Tate Modern has missed a huge missed opportunity on the part of the public because there was a failure on our part to persuade the public authorities and the public bodies to both invest in and zone the area around Tate Modern in a way that could have made it an have an even greater impact on the city than mm. it has had. So there was a kind of short-sightedness or an inability on the part of the public authorities really to understand what could be achieved there. Um, you know, we didn't have a mayor until 2000. And by the time we had a mayor, um, the commercial pressures in the immediate area were very great mm. and the mayor didn't have the power to make compulsory purchase orders or indeed you know to work with developers and in fact actually ken livingston as mayor um really did the opposite in relation to Tate modern because he overruled the local authority and gave planning permission to a for a plan for a 32-storey high tower that would have occupied the, the threshold to Tate Modern. If you go to Tate Modern now, you come if from the, on the side of the ramp and there's a circular green section. And Ken Livingston actually gave planning permission to build a 32-storey high tower there, which we had to... Um, work with all kinds of other people and do various deals to undermine. Mm. So I think what I'm saying is that um, and one consequence was the apartments that are now causing the Tate some difficulty because people who live in those apartments having bought them um, knowing full well Tate Modern was building it extension and now complaining that visitors to Tate Modern look into their apartments. They should be so lucky. Um, well, as I was quoted once of saying, they should buy some neck curtains, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just think that there was a, I mean, you ask what the impact has been. Obviously, the impact has been that property values have increased. Um, there's been really significant commercial development and I'm not objecting to commercial development but I think there was a missed opportunity on the part of the public public bodies. 
And do you think that when um, you see cities develop in this way and the, um, you know, increasing density um, that is occurring everywhere, um, perhaps less so in Australia as our suburbs sprawl further and further out, but do you think that the art museum or the gallery, the public institution, takes on a different role in that place? Does it become a sort of quasi-public space that is worked harder um, by those that live around it? Well, I think that... Um these kinds of museums, these museums are always intended to be spaces of public congregation, a place where people could meet each other, could converse, debate, look at works of art, and recognize that they are doing so in the context of you know, society as a whole. And that's what constitutes a community. Um, I think there's a recognition, there is an increasing recognition, and you see it, you know, with the plans for the precinct behind, sitting behind us here, mm. that, you know, that kind of public space is an essential ingredient for a, a life in cities, and a recognition that um, people want to talk to each other. They want to, I mean, Central Park. Hyde Park, this park, you know, were all created with a view about how cities should function. And for probably far too long in the 20th century, that kind of initiative wasn't really to the fore, and it's perhaps coming back somewhat. Mm. I want to touch on a little bit um, the collections and the thinking around that and the role of artists. You've shown a number of images of artists when attitudes become form. Such a significant show that has been restaged uh, at the Prada Foundation in Venice uh, and has had a sort of rethinking, I think, about this, the role of artists within the institution. Um, before we touch on artists, I'd like to think about the collection because, again, famously, when you built those two institutions, you there was talk of dividing the collection along British and almost the rest of the world. That's obviously evolved over time and, and there's been a movement. Is, is that the way that you would think about um, dividing, dividing collections and thinking about collections over institutions if you were to do it again? Well, as I said a moment ago, I mean, the Tate collections, there were effectively two collections. There was a collection of British art from 1500 to the present day. And then in 1917, the Tate had been given the responsibility for, t for international modern art. Um, and they were given that responsibility because the trustees of the National Gallery felt that it would be dangerous to have um, the post-impressionists and Picasso and Matisse hanging in the same building as the great masters because it would mislead British artists. Um, I mean, I'm quoting from their minutes. But um, so there had always been these two collections. The issue, I think, for um, the Tate was really if you returned the Millbank building to being British art, would that leave British art marooned? Um, or are there other ways of... of doing it. I think that in the case of, I mean, the, there was a group of curators who wanted Tate Britain to stop into 1900. 
Um, and I was rather resistant to, well, I was very resistant to that because it felt to me as though the, the continuities and also the connections that exist between the present and the past were so strong as to not warrant isolating British art in the way that was suggested. But you don't want it to be isolate, totally isolated in any event. You want to, you know, we all know that artists working in Britain um, have come from other parts of the world and artists working in Britain look into other parts of the world. So Tate Britain succeeds best, I think, when it does make connections with the rest of the world. In the case of British artists, they're also seen at Tate Modern. So I think the arrangement that was created in 2000 is probably one that could endure. And the exhibitions, the, the exhibition that you've showed and the artists whose work um, was featured in that really were pushing the idea of the institution and pushing what was possible. They were bringing the work in and they were making the work in situ. I'd like to ask you about risk. As artists continue to push boundaries, as we think of institutions that should be able to um, cater for something that we don't necessarily know about, how do you manage and what is our role as arts professionals in working that fine divide or the fine line um, in supporting risk, in championing risk, um, but being uh, in an increasingly risk-averse world, mindful of all those other things that are part of that uh, institutional context? Um, I think if the institution is doing its job, it will um, create a platform that is solid enough to withstand um, moments, episodes, incidents that affront, cause problems with politicians and others. So I believe strongly that institutions have to build their strength but then from time to time use up some of their credit in doing things that are probably um, necessary because artists are wanting to say things or do things about the way in which society is conducting itself um, that will cause offence. I think you can't have a safe institution. An institution which is safe is probably not doing its job. An institution that takes risk um, and responds to the fact that artists are going to challenge is going to be an institution that has a longer life than one which is, you know, is frightened of risk. But then you have to construct all kinds of safety nets including safety nets for directors and curators. <laughs> because otherwise, um, if you don't create those safety nets, people are thrown overboard. And champions, of course, in yeah. supporting risk. Well, you need a good board of trustees for a start. And they need to be um, you know, encouraged to be supportive and given reasons that they can support the institution and can support curators who want to commission things uh, and programs that will from time to time cause offence. Good. Um, we haven't talked much about um, audiences and I know that you have been a 
enormous champion of education in the broadest possible sense, public programs and engagement, and it's something that, you know, in all my time and involvement in Tate um, was something that I was particularly interested in. I'm keen to leave time for a couple of questions at the end, but I do want to just think about um, a last thing. Curators are often, their primary focus is not necessarily or has not necessarily been audiences. Um, how do you ensure, of course we know that without audiences it doesn't matter how good the show is if no one's coming. How do you ensure that balance between um, spectacle, being part of the experience and uh, exhibitions that work on a range of different levels that engage um, curatorial peers, contribute to scholarship and um, have that sort of uh, more mass experience that I think is expected of our institutions uh, increasingly. Um, Rebecca, I think there's a generation of curators working now that is much more interested in audiences of all kinds than was the case 20 or 30 years ago. I think 20 or 30 years ago, many curators were working very much not to satisfy, but to address their peers, and were more concerned about that than about general audience, the, the general public. But I think talking to younger curators now, it seems to me that they're very much more sensitive and much more, if you like, responsible than was the case um, when I was young. But I think that... Um, these institutions will only survive if they do address their audiences because ultimately the audiences will sanction the pub or indeed demand that the public funds that are required to run these kinds of institutions and the way we want to see them run are made available. And, um, but I don't think that curators can, I mean, they're not going to, um, set out themselves with the goal of ensuring that their institutions survive in, in those terms. I mean, I think they will want to create di dialogue and debate, and they will want to create institutions that are lively and vital, and if they are, ultimately I think the public will support them. So to run an organisation such as Tate on that scale, on that ambition, and that has evolved so much from those 30 years ago to now, it takes a pretty extraordinary leader. Um, if you were to say one thing about uh, the leadership style required to drive to have vision and to see through an institution that's going through such change, what would it be? Well, a very evident thing would be to say you, you need to appoint people who will really challenge you and who will think hard about the direction and course that, that the institution is taking. So I was always very fortunate in having lots of people challenging me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I don't know, you, know, you look at the people working in the in the strongest institutions and they are all sometimes difficult sometimes opinionated sometimes controversial 
but all passionate people, and you can't get anywhere without passion. I think that's a really good point to end on. Um, I won't thank you now, because she, I know we've she's got... A, she's only promised two questions. I wonder who are the two people who are going to get... Well, I'm on, Naomi keeps very strict time, so I, I'm, I'm very conscious that it's, uh, we don't, um, I was going to say overstay our welcome, but I won't say that in this context, um, if we have any questions. Mark? Um, Nick, thank you for, for that. You talked about the Linear Museum. You talked about the, the 19th century, the idea almost of a freeze that one walked along. Um, has, has that changed substantially now? Are we moving towards a non-linear museum, one almost like the internet that one dips in and out of at will? Um, I suppose I think we're probably in a phase where, and we probably will remain in a phase where there are many different kinds of museum experience. And I suppose one of the things I was trying to describe was the fact that you can go into an institution like Tate Modern or probably MoMA or, you know, when this place extends itself and ends up with three institutions. I mean, I was being asked for a moment ago about how do you work with two institutions? The question I would ask is how are you going to work with three institutions? But more seriously, I think there are just many, many different kinds of museum experience and they won't all be in the same organization, the same institution. But I think that we all respond in different ways. So there'll be moments of personal, private contemplation, if you like, even consolation. <laughs> and there will be moments where you're you know, as for the slide at the outset of this, where the turbine hall is filled with 2,000 people. And you want both, I think. So the, choi the choice has shifted uh, to, to the viewer, to the audience. I think the choice has shifted. Well, I think the principal thing that has changed is that um, audiences are no longer content simply to be instructed. Do you think um, they can that's not to say That's not to say they don't want to listen to people who are experts, but I think that they are less willing simply to take everything and accept it as coming from somewhere up there. I was going to say, do you think they can get too big? Audiences? No, institutions. <laughs> Not audiences. Um, Never audiences. I'm sure institutions can get too big. Do we have another question? <laughs> But I'm not going to say which. <laughs> Victoria, let's go on. Audiences um, have changed, uh, but how do you think we can increase the diversity of the types of people that come to museums of modern and contemporary art? By changing our programs. Simple as that. You know, if the tape puts on a show, um, th as they did last summer, of black artists working in America in the 1960s, um, you look at the audience that's coming to that show, it's a different audience. You've got to change, you've got to change the program.
simple as that. And to change the program, you need to appoint curators who have a different range of experience, who aren't simply court-old, trained art historians. He says, being a court-old, trained art historian. <laughs> Do we have one further question? I can see one at the back. So this has been very re reflective of you in the, all that you've said, but you now have a major new role, perhaps. Could I ask you to just give us one or two sentences about the end result of this role? The what, sorry? The chairmanship, your current chairmanship. Um... Well, I have the enormous privilege now of helping individuals who are working in the performing arts, theatre, dance, music, um, and literature, as well as those who are working in the visual arts. Um, and I've been travelling around the UK, mainly in England, and there's astonishing energy an incredible talent on the part of a lot of younger pe people working in their 30s and 40s. They're not getting the support that they should be getting from their local authorities. They're not getting the support they should be getting from their government. Um, they're not getting the support they should be getting actually even from philanthropists because, uh, and my job in a way is to help bring that support. We'll have to see whether I can succeed. And there are lots of other people working alongside me. I'm not working on my own, obviously. But it's a great opportunity. Um, and there are great practitioners working everywhere. You simply have to give them enough to feed them and to give them opportunities to do things that they're dreaming about rather than things that they're constrained to do. You have two little challenges in that. Arts funding, which we always worry is never enough. Um, I can suggest a couple of areas where we might make budget cuts, but I'm sure you can too. Uh, so we have more for the arts. And of course, you've got Brexit. I can't think of a better person to steer a ship um, that champions arts and culture, the role it plays, the significance that all of us know and many others, as you can see from the audiences that came from Tate in the UK. Please join me in thanking Nick Sarota for a fascinating evening. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And perhaps for the record, I should say that three may be more than two, but I think three is possible. <laughs> <laughs>